the 160th is different. We're an armed platform and we do air assault. So dust off's not going to do that. I'm on the helicopter as a flight paramedic with the operators, taking them to their infiltration location, picking them up from their exfiltration location, picking them up a lot of times under gunfire when they call for a Kazavak. If you're getting shot at and there's rockets, we're, we're going to land and pick you up. We don't care because we have mini guns on our helicopters, right? So... Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Special Operations Corpsman Pete McGuire, and I'm joined by vascular surgeon Wayne Causey. On this episode, we discuss with Ricky Ditzel his pathway to become a Special Operations trained 160th flight paramedic. He describes his unique pathway to that position and his transition from the military to medical school. He also gives advice and tips to others who aspire to make the same transition. Learn more about Ricky at WarDocsPodcast.com. Welcome to the WarDocs Podcast. My name is Pete McGuire. I'm joined here by my co-host, Wayne Causey, and today we're going to be interviewing the one and only Ricky Ditzel. Ricky, how are you doing today? Good, man. How are you guys doing? Best day of my life. Love it. <laughs> All right. So let's get this thing started. Ricky, you have a, uh, a very interesting background in a lot of ways. I'm very excited to explore some of these things, but let's start it off at the beginning. What, what got you into the military? Why did you want to join? And what was that path like for you? Yeah, most definitely. So I learned kind of about the military because I did Naval Junior Reserve ROTC, the Officer Training Corps in high school. My home life was pretty rocky from, you know, adolescent to preteen to teenager. And ROTC, you know, JROTC just happened to be this great family, this great melting pot of like everybody from all different walks of life in our school were part of it. So from jocks to quiet folks to nerds to super popular people it didn't matter we were all in this rotc thing and it was cool and i gave me family it gave me a place to be every day at times when i wasn't able to like go home i could you know stay at the rotc when home life got dangerous you know my rotc instructors offered me to stay at their house they offered to pay for my haircuts stuff like that so i felt that camaraderie real early and you know in the moment i thought i was doing good in high school i was good in my classes but I realized I hadn't been going a lot or like I wasn't able to focus at certain points. So I remember talking to a guidance counselor one day because she called me and she's like, hey, man, like you might not graduate. I was like, what do you mean I might not graduate? She's like, you have some bad grades. And I was like, oh, that's really scary. And, you know, I wasn't living with my mom at the time either. So I called her and I was like, hey, I think I'm thinking about college. And she was like, well, with what money? I don't have money for you. You can't. I'm not going to help you. So. I just, you know, I looked at what was around me and what I needed was 360 security that I didn't have in my life. And I figured, luckily I had Google. So like the guy I am, I started Googling and I found out about the different branches and, you know, I was interested in medicine for various reasons. And I saw that the army, all, everybody trained at Fort Sam Houston at the time that I joined. And I was like, well, if the army, if Fort Sam Houston's army base, then might as well join the army and do medicine that way because they're the source. Whatever logic that is, you know, and we can get into that any day of the week. I mean, SODCs are probably the best medics in the game. Hey. And so, yeah, man, it just, it gave me a sense of security. I joined 30 days after graduating high school. I depped in at like 17. So I graduated high school and I got on that. I got the Fort Sill and I joined with a medic and army ranger airborne contract right from the jump. 
but because of Google. And I told my recruiter not to call me unless he had that option available. So that's how it all began. So you said you had various reasons in the JRTC. Was there a military medicine part to JRTC or what really made you think about military medicine as opposed to other parts of the military? No medicine in the JRTC, honestly. It was the fact that my older brother has cerebral palsy. Uh, he was born uh, one pound, 12 ounces, very premature. And so he suffered some uh, pretty bad brain hemorrhages as a kid. And uh, so I grew up with him as my older brother. And he has uh, difficulties with activities of daily living. Like he, you have to feed him. You have to change his diaper. He's blind. He can't walk. And I loved it as a kid. Like I loved being a part of his care. It was never like a burden to me as a child. It just was always like awesome. And like I would take showers with him as a kid. I loved clapping his hand as a kid and playing music and whatever. So we always, he's just like been always my guiding light. So I think that set the seed of like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, why does his brain work the way? What does nothing look like, right? He's blind. I always wondered like, what does he quote unquote see? Well, he sees nothing, but what is that? What is that? So it was all these questions as a kid. And then I took health sciences at like ninth grade. I didn't like the idea of like brushing other people's teeth or like just changing their sheets or something. That didn't really excite me. And then I took anatomy and physiology in like 10th or 11th grade and I fell in love with the language. And I was like, man, this is like a hard thing. I feel like it'd be really smart to do it. You have to work hard. And it just kind of all came together that way and figured that medic was a great route. It gave me a job and it would put me on this path of hopefully on success if, if I look back on it. Wow. Well, I got to say that is like such an impressive story, man. I mean, what's always kind of fascinating to me is that whenever you hear stories of people that went through a lot of hardship, especially in their earlier years, right? Like your developmental years, that just does something to you as a person. Like your personality changes. I think that we talk about the kind of resilience that special operations personnel end up displaying. Like they got that somewhere. They didn't just find that. They didn't just like show up in the military and like, oh, today I'm going to decide to be resilient. No, there was a process. And, and like that process for you, it actually completely makes sense with the way that your life's trajectory is moving now. I mean, you're not only extremely successful. I mean, you're, you're in med school now. Like you're, you're crushing it, bro. After a, a stint in the special operations community, like, man, like those formative years, they, they did something and it's, it shows. And I got to say, this is also my big shout out. Hey, I'm in the Navy. You should have been in the Navy. You're NJ ROTC, dude. And and what's interesting to me, did you have a, a chief in your NJ ROTC like leadership no, I team? Had a, I had a Marine first sergeant who, rest in peace to him, he was, first sergeant Broderick was an amazing guy and he was a DOT back in the day. So we did a lot. Of, being in high school and doing drill and ceremony was awesome. When I got into the army, I didn't care about drill and ceremony, but doing it with him was sick. And then I had a uh, lieutenant commander as the, the officer side of the program. So as a freshman, you do like the enlisted side of the program. It's with the Marine DI for Sergeant Broderick and then commander guy does the other side. And that's years three through four. And I ended up being in charge of the whole thing at, at my senior year. I was a cadet commander. So it was great. I love it. I love it. I've got a friend of mine. So he attributes his entire naval career to the fact that he was a part of NJ ROTC in high school. And, and I got to say, that was something that wasn't available to me whenever I was in high school. But I am fascinated by every single time I talked to somebody that did that, how impactful it was. So yeah, dude, I, I love that. That's awesome. So tell us about your early career in military medicine. So you said you went off to Fort Sam and you became a medic. You had a contract that you described to us that you had as, when you enlisted. Tell us about that pathway. I love talking about this because I, I think 
too many times people don't like to share failure and this was a huge failure. So I went straight from medic school to airborne school passed. I went from airborne school to ranger assessment selection program and passed. And at that point, I'm 19 years old. And at 19 with Tambore, uh, and then coming from my background, man, I was on top of the world and I felt invincible. And I thought I could fight anybody, outwork anybody, out, especially out push up anybody, outrun anybody. It was just this and it's it's necessary for that organization. Just this awesome high ego of we're gonna be super, super successful and no matter nothing can stop us. Well, I didn't know how to like downregulate that attitude. And so I showed up to the special operations combat medic program. I did pre-socking for seven weeks under Andy Fisher. So that's always funny. And Mike Shaspansky, two legends and two people who changed the game for medicine. And I go off to Sockham and five of us young, dumb new rangers decide after a Blackhawk jump gets canceled that we want to participate in some activities that you need to be 21 to participate in. And one of those people ended up getting like alcohol poisoning and his roommate called the EMTs. EMTs show up. He goes and gets an IV, typical like normal drunk kid stuff. And when he got interviewed by the command team, he told him everybody was with him and the whole what went down and we got a knock on the door the next morning and I'm in the first sergeant's office. So my days of being a ranger and then a potential ranger medic, I was never a ranger medic, ended like two weeks into getting to Sockham. And so I was pretty down for, I'd say like a, about a week. I was like, man, I'm, I just blew it. I, I went from here to zero overnight. And we became the safety brief of all of SWIC. But you could be in the Q course and you were hearing about these five rangers. And it was really blown out of proportion. It was like, we were being told that we tried to kill our buddy. I went to a climbing gym and I had a guy that was like, aren't you one of those guys who just got kicked out of Sockham? Like it was, it permeated all of Swix. And then the kids at Sockham destroyed us every time we showed up to a, a formation. And so I, I, I was, I just, I was, I got to a point where I was like, I'm either going to go to a BSB, which is a brigade support battalion. I'm going to be this amazing clinical medic. And I'm going to get in with my doc and learn how to do great clinical work, or I'm going to go to the line and I'm going to be this awesome line medic. And there's no in between. This is this is the reality. I did this to myself. I put myself in this position, and so lean with it, rock with it. And so it's exactly what happened. I went to the 407th BSB with 82nd Airborne, and for the first four months, I didn't talk to anybody. I walked around with a backpack full of textbooks, and I read the Merck manual front to back. And it was a form of like you see this a lot of kids. You see this in a lot of people with our background. It was a form of like self-punishment when I look back on it. That like you did this to yourself and you better grind every day because this is what you deserve. So I remember I had my lieutenant at the time. She pulled me aside and she was like, you're not going to survive here if you don't start talking to people. Because while all the people hung out in the Joe's shack, I'm reading the Merc Manual or the Bates Guide and like sitting on the stairs. And so I had this hard transition, but... I ended up getting in good with my doc. I ended up doing well with the BSB guys. They were really great. I'm still friends with a lot of the guys from that organization, still friends with some of my leadership from that organization. And I got to do some cool stuff. I treated a lot of injuries on the drop zone. I don't think people realize that like, I had a, a more probably mass cows on CONUS drop zones in the 82nd than I did overseas <laughs> because you're just doing these mass tactical events. I was part of the largest joint airborne exercise since World War II. We jumped 1,300 people on a mass tack and we evac'd 57 people to UNC Duke that night. They're all critical. You can look the article up. And so like, 
It was a great experience in the sense, I feel bad for those service members, of course, but it was a great experience as far as a young medic treating fe broken femurs, broken backs, broken pelvises, given narcotics. And I was allowed to give narcotics at an early time because of my Ranger pre-SOCM experience, such a good foundation. And then one day the opportunity popped up and it was like, got called in my lieutenant's office and he was like, hey man, so 1325 infantry wants an E4 for one of their staff sergeants and you're in shape. And, and this is a theme, a reoccurring theme in my career. You're the one who's in shape. So we're going to trade you to the Red Falcons. You're going to go be a line medic. And I was like, hell yeah, Roger that. That's what I want to do. I want to be a line medic. I want to do boys. And so, yeah, I went from this moment of being on top of the world to blowing it and losing one of the best opportunities. I mean, to be a ranger medic is a, it's, it's legacy. That, those guys are so good at what they do. And it was all I wanted to do. And I lost it only on my own accord. And so then I took control back and made something out of nothing. And so I went from the BSB to the infantry and had some great experiences there. Even went to jungle warfare school in Africa with them. So that was cool. Dude, that is awesome. I, I love the recovery right there. One of the things I like to talk about, I went to BUDS whenever I first came in the Navy. I ended up quitting. I've got no shame in that at all. I think a lot of guys, there's kind of a stigma with that. Like, oh, like you quit. You can never be anything good again. But what that, what that did for me was the same kind of process. It was like, I went through a period of like self-punishment. I mean, all of mine was like fitness related. It was just, yeah, just crushing your soul. Because for some reason, for 19-year-old Pete McGuire, that seemed like the right thing to do. And so I got in great shape. And so whenever I started the, the SOIDC pipeline, I, I never had an instance in my pipeline where physical fitness was ever in question. I had lots of other things that were hard, but the physical fitness part was, was down pat. Um, and and it's, it's just funny to me because those little those forks in the road that take you down a path where you get the opportunity to truly learn life lessons, holy cow, like those things, they, once again, they develop something in you that, that makes you so much more likely to think not only creatively about where you're at in the future, but also to dig in deep, improve your foxhole and like make something out of nothing. Like, dude, that's awesome, bro. So talk to us a little bit about the transition that you went from the 82nd and then you got to try out for some super cool unit that I've heard about before. <laughs> yeah. So my time from leaving Sockham to returning was 18 months. So I didn't waste any time. And that was my goal. And I told the cadre at Sockham, because Sockham being Sockham, there's really incredible people there and there's some not so incredible. So I, I had senior NCOs coming to me when I was on extra duty being like, hey man, what's it feel like to ruin your life? What's it like to know that you, had a, you could have a great signing bonus and a great career and now it's over? Constantly, constantly. And so I remember just telling those guys, being like, dude, I'll be back. Like, you're definitely going to see me, but sure. And so from a uh, time of leaving Sockham to back, I was back in 18 months. So I did time, I did a little bit in the infantry side. Like I said, I went to French Jungle Warfare School in Gabon, Africa. Uh, I got my Gabonese jump wings. And then a week later, I went to Sockham first. So I got a phone call from the senior medic of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment at the time. And he said, hey, man, I saw your application. You're honest about what happened with your, with your thing with Ranger Bat. I called the Ranger Bat senior medic. And he said, you're a, you a good dude. So we're going to give you a shot. And you're already at Bragg, so we're going to send you to Sockham first. And I was like, that's amazing. And it just like goes to show like what good leadership looks like. Because that senior medic from Ranger Bat could have fried my career. But he looked past a young man making a mistake and said, when he was here as a pre-Sockham, he worked hard, he was respectful, put the time in. He went off to Sockham, made a mistake. And we already punished him for that. We got kicked out of Ranger Bat. So he, that, and he's still in the military now. So, and he's, he's at a regular army unit, but I'm not going to say his name just in case 
he wants to keep that to himself. But big ups to that sergeant major, who's sergeant major now. And so I went to Sockham, went straight through, second time around, saw some cadre. They were really excited to have me back, which was dope. And then I went to Green Platoon, which is the selection and assessment process for the 160th SOAR. Did that. It's a five-week program. Was successful there. I missed beating the 12-mile ruck record by one minute, and I'm still not over it to this day. So I did an hour. It was an hour 55, 12-mile. I need to beat like 154.50, and I just missed it, so I'm still pissed. And then from there, I did the rest of our pipeline. So that includes intrinsic special operations, aviation medical indoctrination course. That's our own flight medic program. From there, I was able to go to survive, evade, resist, and escape school level one. Very fun. I also ended up going to the advanced version of that. So also more fun and super cool. And uh, yeah, I, that's how I assessed and selected there. And, and I was able to pass our pipeline. And all those things I just mentioned are all part of the initial pipeline. So our listeners may not be as familiar with special operations, the two of you. And so when they hear the 160th, I mean, we're thinking the elite paramedic unit, the aviation unit. Describe to our listener audience what is unique about this unit and particularly what was unique about being a paramedic with that unit. Yeah. So fundamentally, the true uniqueness of the 160th sort of lies in its purpose, and that is to service every special operator under the umbrella. And there's not many units whose sole dedication and focus is that mission. And we take that very seriously. These are my own opinions. Obviously, I'm not speaking on behalf of the 160th or as a whole organization or the use of SOAC or use of SOC. But even in, that's what our creed is. Service is a calling only if you will answer for the mission is constantly demanding and hard. And when the apostle has been accomplished, the only reward is another mission no one else will try. Right? It's the first line of the creed for being a night stalker. And... When you look at that mission, and we say we bring our customers, these people in the special operations unit, any time, any world, any time, anywhere in the world, arriving time on target, plus or minus 30 seconds. If you've ever flown with us, that's 100% the truth. We don't miss any target, whether it's pickup, infill, exfil, taking someone off of a target, casualty evacuation. If we say we're going to be there at 9.30 p.m., we're going to be there at 9.29.30 or 9. 30, 30, right? Plus or minus 30 is taken very seriously. And so the uniqueness of that is it's the best pilots in the world flying on the best aircraft with the sole dedication of getting the most elite to and from their targets and off of it should they need help. And that's where we got to come in as special operations, critical care flight paramedics. And it is the most spoiled position to have, I think, in the world because I get to make sure that I take care of my pilots and my crew chiefs and then any other night stalkers, right? First and foremost, make sure my people are good. But I also get to really, really care about the operators of every organization and they all become my people. And that's unique because when you're a ranger medic, you have your rangers. And when you're a raider, you're with your raiders. And when you're at 160th, it's everybody. And we get to know everybody's protocols. I get to know, hey, Oh, I'm deploying with so-and-so this time around. Pete's going to be there. I know Pete likes to put his chem lights this way. And Pete uses ketamine more so than he uses morphine because that's what he has his formulary. Versus this medic, he doesn't have something like ketamine. He might use morphine. And so we get to know all the protocols of all the different units and interact with all the units. And the other uniqueness about our organization is you can get in at a young age like I did at a low rank and none of that matters. So if you're at... 1160th task force 1160th in Fort Campbell like I was as a E4 a specialist you might end up briefing the sec def one day 
and they take you very seriously because you're the 160th medic. And, you, and that I think is extremely unique because in most other infantry-based unit, it's very hierarchical, right? You have a senior medic, a junior medic, a, lot, a team medic, whatever, whatever. And where we came from, it was, you're the medic for the air side of the show. It forced you to be a big time professional on all levels. So the way you public speak, the way you interact with the customer, the way you interact with all the medical assets, you're kind of the person making sure all that stuff is working. And so it's a, it's a really spoiled position. So let me ask one follow-up question real quick. And so when someone's listening to this and they say, well, well, what exactly is a flight paramedic? And so like I work at a level one trauma center and we have helicopter patients that come in all the time. What would you tell people is this is the job of a flight paramedic? I do. And then what is your description? Sure. So I'll do it too. What's the job of flight paramedic? And then what's the job of 160 flight paramedic? They're extremely, because they're very different. A flight paramedic, especially on the conventional side of the military, they're amazing. They do a lot of critical care transport. So picking up really sick people, they need to go from one facility to the next. They provide some really amazing medical support with resuscitation, things like blood, presser medications to keep them alive. They take care of from neonates all the way to grandma or grandpa. They transfer anybody, everybody. And deployed environment, the military side, conventional side, dust off is an unarmed platform that is sole purpose is to pick people up from drop zones and do critical care transport. The conventional flight medics, I think, are more traditional textbook flight paramedics who do incredible work and I think know a lot more critical care medicine than probably I did doing what my job was. So any flight medics listening, I give you guys a huge shout out for what you guys do. The 160th is different. We're an armed platform and we do air assault. So dust off's not going to do that. So we are, I'm on the helicopter as a flight paramedic with the operators, taking them to their infiltration location, picking them up from their exfiltration location, picking them up a lot of times under gunfire when they call for a Kazavak. If you're getting shot at and there's rockets, we're, we're going to land and pick you up. We don't care because we have mini guns on our helicopters, right? So, and I'm, I'm armed with an with a M4. So like, that's a, that's a huge difference. So what I did was, I would say mostly for the GWAT and my portion of the GWAT is that we provided mostly very aggressive ground medicine just on an aerial platform with more capabilities. So we had more blood. I was flying whole blood. I had freeze-dried plasma at certain times and just a lot more supplies. But I never got into like hanging complex drip sets like flight, other flight paramedics do. I never got into uh, certain swans, gants, catheters or anything of that critical care nature that you see on the civilian side. So honestly, what Pete was doing on the ground, we were basically just doing in the helicopter. We just with a little bit more space and flying really, really fast in the dark. <laughs> One thing that I think I would love to give 160 a big props on is the fact that a lot of times we on the ground, we're really stressed out, right? Like we're, we're, we're doing the best we can with what we have. And so what happens a lot is that we end up, we hand a 160th medic a really messy situation, right? Uh, a great example, we had quite a few AARs come out whenever I was uh, instructing over at Bragg about how guys like me would load a patient up with a lot of ketamine as pain management. A guy just lost both his legs. He's all peppered up with shrapnel. I hit him with ketamine and I, I'm able to successfully snow him out, right? He goes unconscious and essentially in, in that dissociated state. Well, the problem is that because guys like me either make mistakes and don't get the dose perfectly 
or we don't document it, or we forget to tell the medic or whatever else. Well, all of a sudden, here Ricky is 10 minutes into his 30-minute flight, and then a combative patient wakes up, and you're in the back of a Blackhawk. I mean, I'm, Ricky, would you say that that's a pro probably about the size of like a minivan? Like, probably smaller than that. So just for people to wrap their heads around this, the the space that he's working in, to have one patient, or even worst case, more than one patient, like, it's just really uncomfortable. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And and that's the biggest part where from from our side is the ground medics, right? Like, man, so many props to to the 160th and, and to you know, all the flight medics that that support us with dust off too. I mean, like it's we we hand them a hard situation and then it's it's pretty amazing what they can end up doing despite our best medicine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the wind is not our friend. Sometimes we don't have the doors on. So you're if you're flying 145, 160 miles an hour with a casualty and that you have no doors on and there's no windows, you have to learn how to do a lot of procedures in different ways. You have to learn how to use your body as windshields. And it's just, it's just a little bit different. It, you just, just like the ground guys and the environment-based medicine starts to kick. Uh, and that, that's a big difference. And I would say like the civilian flight side has very stable flight. We're not doing anything in stable flight. And then we have our larger platform, the big school bus, the 47s, where the, how many guys can you put on 47? Well, one more, right? You can put, always put on another guy. And a lot of times, a big part of our learning and our training is learning how to control that ramp when you guys come in hopped up because you were just in a firefight and some of your best friends just got injured. We have to be able to say, hey, pause, and we got to load our aircraft that works best way for us. So once again, 160th medic skills, a lot of triage skills, a lot of decision-making, very interesting decision-making skills. And then, yeah, really great medicine, just really great medical training. Do you have any particular clinical scenarios that give the listener a idea of what it would be like taking care of a combat casualty injured patient as a flight paramedic? Yeah, a couple thoughts come to mind. I, I would say what it's like is, from our end is that I can't get into too many details, but I'll say things like I'll hear a ground guy come over the radio that their troops are in contact. There's a gunfight going on. For me, that doesn't affect me because that's in our world, that's their job. Right, they're unfortunately supposed to get in those gunfights, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it. And then I kind of just hang out, and we're sometimes we're doing stuff, sometimes we're not. And next they come over the radio saying, "Hey, requesting Kazavak of a certain level of triage." Typically, if we're getting called in over the radio like that, it's usually an urgent casualty. It's usually someone who's really sick, is in threat of dying. I'm trying to use very basic words here, so I. Don't offend any military people listening. I'm not using triage categories here. Someone who's about who's critically ill and it might and might die if they don't get off the ground in like 20 minutes, honestly, sometimes. So I hear that. We'll request that medic on the ground or that radio guy to send us a quick update of what the patient looked like. So are they stable or not? Are they stable or unstable? Usually they're unstable if they're calling us. What are their injuries do they have? And then what treatments do they put on board if they're able to get it to us? Sometimes we get that info, sometimes we don't. And so then depending on that length of flight to go pick up that casualty. I'm doing heuristics in my head, right? I'm going through scripts. I'm going through injury scripts in my head and I'm establishing my working area, my cabin. So, hey, he lost both his legs. I'm getting my litters ready. I'm getting hypothermia management going. I'm getting warming blankets going. I'm letting my crew chiefs know I'm going to need their help if I got to pull one of them or two of them, depending on how many casualties I'm. And so in that little time of flight, it's prep phase. And then the landing happens. And then the landing is where a lot of the chaos can happen because once again, these guys were just in a gunfight. They're hopped up on Mountain Dew. They're going to be storming that bird to get their buddy out of there. And so this is where 
some deliberate action takes place. So then the handoff happens. We try and do that over closed communication. We get off the aircraft usually to do that. So we're jumping off the bird, getting these casualties, doing what we got to do, get back on the bird. And then it's, it's in-flight medicine until we get to the receiving facility. And in my situation, often I would go into the, the treatment facility and continue to work on the guys and augment the staff there. So one minute you're the primary caregiver doing this emergency medicine in flight, and the next minute you're assisting on a surgical procedure. Or sometimes you're even assisting on a surgical procedure in flight. So there's a very wide scope of practice there. And yeah, that's, that's a very, very generic scenario that, I, that I've ran into. I've got called in to pick up a double amputee, 40, 30% TBSA, total burn surface area, broken pelvis, traumatic arrest in, in the field, and in that situation where you're like, okay, traumatic arrest, am I going to do CPR? Are we going to cross clamp his aorta? What are my priorities here? Does he have an airway? Does he not have an airway? The medic on the ground did have blood, so I'm, I'm way behind the power curve. I'm going to have to dump blood into this person. And so those are the things that I was thinking as we went to go pick up that, that casualty. And then we picked that casualty up and did we did in flight. And then we worked on him for another probably 25 to 35 minutes at the hospital doing a cardiac massage and never got him back. But that's the rhythm. That's the routine. It's and, and then obviously you can add layers of complexity. Are we landing? Am I hoisting? And if I'm hoisting, what type of hoist am I doing? Is it going to be on a litter or am I going to hug them? Am I going to do like a buddy hoist? And that's a different mental script, obviously, because tactics are really important, especially when you're hoisting. It's really, really dangerous. Looks cool in movies. Looks really cool in person. Is really cool. Very, very dangerous. <laughs> Hey, Ricky, there was a 160th medic that got a silver star for doing a bunch of hoists on one operation. How many hoists 17. did he do on one operation, right? 17 urgent hoists on one operation. It's, it's madness. But yeah, that dude, that, and that's like anything for anybody listening. It's right place, right time, or mm -hmm. right or wrong place, wrong time. And he happened to be in that wrong place at the right time, and he did his job. And then the following night, did it again, but in a minefield. So there was IEDs going off and he was riding the hoist hook. So second star. So, so what's funny, right? And, and this is something that I think really kind of captures the 160th community. Man, like every community kind of has a, a personality, right? The 160th community has a level of like this, uh, almost like cool and calculated kind of mentality, like super smart guys. Like I feel like they're the smartest of all the soft medics. But what's funny is that guy, we were at the, actually at the Mayo Clinic doing some training together. In a small group, I had no idea about its history. And guess what? He never brought up. And then, and then I see a presentation like a year later and I'm like, ah, man, like you could have told me so many cool stories, dude. But I, I, I think that's what's really impressive about not only that story, but just about your entire community is like the level of flexibility that is expected at a moment's notice, right? Like, hey, you thought that this bird was landing. Well, surprise. Now you're going to be doing a hoist at night under nods into a gunfight. Like, Bro, awesome. That's, that is why people love the 160th. That's why. <laughs> and, and one thing I do want to throw out to the listeners, here's just a quick bro tip on how to do some good medicine and how to make a flight medic not hate you, is whenever you're doing a turnover with him under the rotors, touch his body where the injuries are. Like, just do that thing. He got shot in the chest, and then you just poke him right in the chest. And he's not even going to be mad at you because whenever he goes inside that bird, he's going to sit down and be like, he touched me on the chest. I should probably look at my patient's chest. What other tips do you have for that? Because I'm, I'm sure that I, I'm, I don't know, there's a better way to describe it than what I just did. 
No, that's honestly perfect. The honest truth is we don't trust anything you guys do. And I don't mean that in a negative way. We're going to trust but verify because we have to, right? It's the right thing for the patient. The best thing you can do is tell us things we can't see. And I think that's the same even for like Doc on the call. Like, I can't see the drugs you put in the patient's body. And I could really hurt somebody if I don't know what drugs you put in the patient's body. Like, especially if we're talking about opiates, right? If you light someone up on IV fentanyl, which is a great drug, and then I also light them up on IV fentanyl, and then their respiratory drive tanks, I'm also dealing with bandwidth stress, right? I'm also dealing with the sound of noise. My whole world is vibrating. I might be jacked up on Mountain Dew, right? I might have six casualties, and we're flying really fast. So like, I telling the flight medic what I can't see. I can see tourniquets. I can see a chest seal. I can see holes, but... That, that's the biggest thing is drugs, how much fluid you put into someone, and then anything like that. But yeah, the touching works really well. Casualty cards work well, but I know it's really hard to get those done. So it's just, it's just not reliant. Writing on the patient's body can work sometimes. But once again, it's, un, it's under night, night vision or I'm using like a headlamp in my mouth and it's, it's like a blue light because I can't blind my pilots, right? So it's, it's not too easy to read. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're really describing something that I would say really should be a take-home point for for everybody listening is that you should learn to do something in the same way, do that every single time so that you don't miss something. And it for like me as a surgeon, it may be as simple as when I sight mark the patient's leg to say I'm operating on the left or the right, I make sure that it's marked. I make sure the consent's done. I think make sure the consent's proper. Same thing with trauma. I make sure that I run through my ABCs or CAB or whatever order it is that you decide you want to do. You do it the same way every time so you don't skip something, you don't miss something, and you don't make somebody a unique patient to do something different on. I think that's very wise advice. That you do. Yeah, so you made a transition, right? So now you're in medical school, but you had a, a gap. Tell me about the transition and what you did in the, in the interim time after you left the military. So when I got out of the military, I was during the height of COVID and I was not a good transitioner. I made my senior medic's life really rough, to be honest with you, because the job I had lined up, I was going to go be an emergency medicine instructor for an agency. And that agency called me and said, hey, we can't do in-person training because of COVID. So we don't need in-person instructors. And we haven't figured out per second OPSEC, operational security, over Zoom or virtually. So we can't hire you because of the nature of the work we do. And I was like, well, that's great. I'm transitioning the military. I just lost my financial safety, right? And I, I just, I have a lot of financial anxiety from my upbringing. So even though I had money from the military, the fact of not having a paycheck, I just like started to panic. So like one day I'd be like, I'm going to re-enlist. And then I'm, the next day I'd be calling my senior medic, I'm not going to re-enlist. And so then I finally decided to get out in this height of COVID. And I got a phone call from Dr. Stephen Rush, who you guys know really well. And Dr. Rush said, hey, Dr. Mabry, Bob Mabry, who's an absolute legend and a, just the most humble leader ever, is going to be doing some COVID work and is trying to stand up a hospital. And so is Colonel Missy Givens. You might get a phone call from one of them, but I told him to give you a call. And how soon can you be in New York City if they call you? And this was April 4th, 2020. And I said, well, my mom's 50th birthday is on April 7th. She'll kill me if I don't go home first, but I'll be in New York April 8th. And so... I got a call from Colonel Melissa Givens and she kind of gave me the skinny and was like, New York Presbyterian is going to run a hospital and then Mount Sinai wants to stand up a hospital. I'm going to take the Presby side. You're going to take the Sinai side. And I was like, all right, I'll get on some phone calls. We'll see what that looks like. Got on the phone with Sinai. Keep a long story short. 
I didn't think what they were doing made sense. My background with 160 is basically disaster management. My undergraduate degree is in disaster management. And their plan for what they wanted to do for this COVID stuff didn't make sense. So I called Missy and I said, I think I should join your team and we should go all in on what we're doing with Presby because they seem to have a, a good support system. That support system was, Colonel Gibbons, you staff this thing, you run it, you build it, and we'll give you the administrative stuff that you need to make it happen. And so Missy kindly offered for me to be her clinical operations director. And I attribute my ability to do that job because of the 160. I never ran a hospital before. I've never built a hospital, right? I, I never worried about quality control and who's current on their glucose monitors and stuff like that. And like all these patient inflow outflow things, but trusted Colonel Givens. She's a legend in the community. It was an easy decision that you say yes when Missy calls you. So show up to New York and we did just that. We built a, a hospital. We, we called it a field hospital because it's on Columbia soccer field in a bubble. We had a full-blown hospital. We had running water. We had oxygen farm. We had fiber optic Wi-Fi. We had patient beds. We had Bluetooth monitors, all that crazy stuff. The importance of this story is that we staffed that hospital full of special operations medics, current and former. And we wrote to the joint commissions in New York City, and I say we, it was Dr. Kate Kemplin, to get it waived that their scope of practice would be allowed under the executive order to perform at a higher level than the civilian sector would ever allow us to do. And because of that, we had civilian nurses, military special operations medics, civilian paramedics, and civilian doctors and military doctors all working in this field hospital taking care of real COVID patients in the height of the pandemic. This is April to May 2020. And we built a 216-bed hospital. We took care of 150 patients in a month. And it was an incredible operation. More importantly, we used that time to highlight a Navy SEAL, a, young, a, a, a wonderful guy named Ryan Larkin. And I will never act like I knew Ryan. I never knew Ryan. I know his father. But Ryan, unfortunately, he took his own life. He died by suicide after some struggles with his mental health and what his father attributes to his history of TBIs. And so we named the hospital the Ryan F. Larkin Field Hospital. And we did that because of what TBI means to the special operations community and what mental health means to the special operations community. So we thought it was really important to do that. So we successfully showed what soft medics can do in healthcare, that the taxpayer $1.3 million investment to create one of us is worth it on the civilian side. We showed that an apprenticeship model can work really well, and we highlighted Navy SEAL. We then took that model, we closed it down, and four of us, myself, Green Beret, a Ranger medic, and a CA medic, which is awesome. We got like almost everybody, rolled into this novel tracheostomy care team. And so we were under otolaryngology. We took care of every trach patient who had COVID in the entire hospital. And this four-person team, we were credentialed in Epic as PAs. And our scope of practice was niche to only tracheostomies. So we didn't give any tracheostomies, but we cleaned them, we exchanged them, we changed their vent settings, we capping trials to get them decannulated. We did all that stuff, wound care. Once again, we showed this model that if you put these special operations medics who have a great level of understanding of X, Y, and Z, if you put them in this niche field with some oversight that we can execute. I mean, I'll tell you by like the third week of us doing this, we are getting quoted by critical care attendings in their notes. We'll refer to trach team on trach progression. We'll refer to trach team on vent setting changes. This is for special operations medics, right? And we're getting recognized by critical care attendings. And the hospital really wanted to keep that team. And that's really funny. And they're actually trying to build a trach team right now of physician's assistants because the nurses loved it. 
because trach care is hard. The nurses were slammed. They did their best. But to have someone just focus on that care was awesome because if you get discharged with the tracheostomy in place, your mortality levels skyrocket, especially if you're going to a skilled nursing facility or somewhere else that's not your house with a, with a really good care team. Social determinants of health really matter when you're talking about someone with a trach tube in their throat. So we did that. I did that. And then I transitioned to something totally different. I was the health and safety supervisor for the mental health docuseries by Oprah and Prince Harry called The Me You Can't See. So I oversaw that entire operation and we had not a single person get COVID. I worked with the people that I mentioned in the name of the, the title of that docuseries. I signed a lot of NDAs for that docuseries, so I can't get into too many details, but it was really awesome. I worked with a lot of celebrities, way different experience, got to apply my military background once again, right? It was disaster management. It was professionalism. It was medicine. So very proud that nobody on that set, and it was international, right? We were on the continent of Africa and four countries, and we were in the UK. And I, we, I managed all of that for health and nobody got sick. And then after that, I, after meeting amazing med vets, medical veterans at Columbia University in New York City, I applied to Columbia to do my post back. I did my post back. I interned at the Neuropathology Brain Bank at Mount Sinai. I then worked at the Neuropathology Brain Bank at Mount Sinai. And then I matriculated to medical school. So it was a crazy journey from 2020 to 2023 coming off of the military career. So Ricky, I just want to let you that I'm starting to feel really insecure about my accomplishments right now. So, so thank you for that. I mean, I got to say like, I mean, how cool is that? Right. And, and I think once again, the thing that is very unique about the special operations community is, is the flexibility within which you can move back and forth between these types of environments and still find success, like well, create success. Right. I, I think that that is something that a lot of times you see as a member of the soft community that there's almost like this insecurity. You're like, oh man, like, I don't know if I could be successful. Like yours is not the first cool story that I've heard about a guy getting out, even not after 20 years, but after eight years, dude, you did eight years. And then you got to hang out with Oprah. Look at you go, bro. Like, like, I mean, like that, that, it, that really is, it, it shows a lot about not only you, but just about the, the kind of guys that, that we're surrounded by. And that sometimes I think that we just underestimate ourselves. You know what I mean? So you're now in medical school. And so tell us how you made then that transition from neuropathology, Mount Sinai, post-baccalaureate program to Rush Medical School. And is you being financed partly by the military as you do this? So I actually got a leadership scholarship from the university. So I actually have a full ride from my institution, which is really uh, an honor. And the scholarship is from an amazing person who's on the board of, of the system. So I'm very grateful for her and her family. But I, I once again, I attribute that to, to special operations because it was to apply for the scholarship, you had to write about leadership, your leadership philosophy, and examples of leadership. I had so many things to choose from, and I was able to give some really concrete examples, I felt. And so I was very lucky and fortunate to receive that. Now, I still am getting my veteran benefits for medical school as well on top of that, because that's a tuition scholarship. And then my veteran benefits are for anything else. So if I need a textbook, if I need paper, if I need a stethoscope, that's where my veteran benefits kick in. So I got my undergraduate degree on active duty. That was covered uh, for anybody who's thinking about joining the military. I did my post-baccalaureate at Columbia University. That was covered through the GI Bill. And now I'm at medical school and I have a chapter 31 benefits that would have also covered medical school if I didn't receive the scholarship. So I was able to get the scholarship 
and not need the the full benefit, but I have the benefits for the for the other reasons. And it honestly, I'm sure other people have gone through medical school. Once the finances is taken away from medical school, your stress levels immensely decrease. And I'll say this, and I hope this comes off very humbly. Growing up very poor at certain stances of my life, growing up in financial insecurity at stances of my life, knowing that I'll come out of medical school and residency without debt is a whole different start to my physician career than my f- mentors who are still in debt from their medical programs. So it's a, it's a crazy feeling that I'm extremely grateful for. So I'm actually interested because I don't know pathway you're describing because the pathway I'm familiar with is the one where people go to medical school through the military. And you're talking about a now a post-medical school payment by the military. Can you describe to us those chapter 31 benefits that you talk about for the textbooks and the other parts of uh, schooling? Yeah. So there's multiple benefits. The one I'm receiving is for, you have to have a certain level of disability. So I, I had injuries in the military that I have a certain level of disabilities that I'm rated for by the Department of Veteran Affairs. And that allows me to have what's called vocational rehabilitation benefits. What that means is we, the Veterans Affairs, is going to help you find a career and help you get a job. What it takes to get you to that job, we're going to pay for and support. So I wanted to be a physician. To be a physician, I know you guys know this, but you have to go to medical school, you have to go through residency. Medical school costs a lot of money. The medical school I'm going to is around 80, 90,000 a year. That comes out to a quarter million dollars at the end of the day, just tuition fees. Because I had the vocational rehabilitation, the government pays for that. They cover all that. If I didn't have the tuition scholarship, they would pay for all of that. And then because it's part of my program, I need textbooks, I need a laptop, I need a printer, they pay for those things. And they also give me a monthly housing stipend based on my zip code, just like when I was on active duty. So that's one route. That's you did some time and now you have some injuries. Your injuries give you this disability. And this is a way to kind of help you through your disabilities, find a career that's suitable for your disabilities, right? Going into disaster management career probably wouldn't have been a good option for me. Now, you also are eligible for the post 9-11 GI Bill. That would have covered a substantial portion of medical school, but not all of it. And then that really depends on if the medical school, civilian medical school participates in what's called yellow ribbon. So a medical school will determine whether or not they want to match a certain amount of money to what the government is paying. So the government will pay, say, a max of 26 k I think, like a year. The school can match that 26000 or they can do less, or they can honestly do more. The match is on the institution, which is very interesting. And then they have the option to determine whether they want to do that for one person, one veteran a cycle, or 50, or unlimited. So when you're looking at medical school after serving the military, these are the things you really need to pay attention to is, is my school Yellow Ribbon Unlimited? Have they had a vocational rehabilitation student before? Things like that. Now, will any of those benefits carry over when you do residency? So for residency, they will help. If if I need help finding, getting a job, vocational rehab will help me land a job. So they'll pay for certain things finding that job. There are instances where you can use your GI Bill in residency even if it's just a monthly housing allowance. But other than that, I don't think so. Yeah. And I'm also fortunate to be a Pat Tillman Foundation scholar, so they're supporting me also on a room and board. So that helps a lot. That's awesome, man. And one thing that I, I think is really important to highlight, especially for the guys that are listening to us right now who are enlisted, is that there are so many opportunities to prepare you to go into some kind of medical specialty after you get out. And I would highly, highly suggest 
that you network your way into talking to people that have done it before you. Because you're going to discover a lot of things. And like I used to teach a class on continuing education to special operations medics. And the biggest thing that I told everybody was, if you want to do it, do it. Like, don't let finances get in the way. Don't let whether you're, you, you don't feel confident enough to become a physician get in the way. You can do it. You just need to have the confidence to take the step and then to find the right mentors to get you there. And Ricky Ditzel's cell phone number is 22. <laughs> but yeah, but there, there are so many people that would love to help you out. And, and it's just about finding those folks, having those conversations, and then, and then getting prepared to, to do that next step of service. Because I think that's the big thing that I, I feel like is on my mind a lot is this idea that lifelong service is what, what really is the, the embodiment of what I see in the truest leaders of the military. And, and it's not about when you retire, it's not about anything like that, but it's about carrying that forward into whatever next phase of life you find yourself going into. So, so yeah, use this networking thing. I, I don't know if you guys have seen the theme in Ricky's story yet, but it's, hey, somebody called on his behalf because they knew that he was a good dude. How many times has that come up? I think this is the third time it's come up. And that's because of the, the quality of person that Ricky is. So once again, that's your encouragement. Go be a good human today. So now, Ricky, you got out of the military as one of the top trained military flight paramedics with the 160th, then went and started doing additional research in neurotrauma and TBI and had experiences in that realm and are now in medical school. When you look back, what do you think are some of the important highlights of things in the pre-hospital traumatic brain injury management that you would say, these were really important things that I may not have recognized when I was a flight paramedic, but this additional medical training that I've now sought really brings this to the forefront where this is really something someone who does this job should be thinking about. To be fully honest with you, I think what's really lacking in pre-hospital traumatic brain injury in the definition of, say, moderate severe TBI, where there's tissue involvement or there's blood involvement, it's not just it's not a mild TBI that is, that's, more, that's more biochemical. What I feel is missing the most in the training is really understanding the anatomy. When, in Sockham, when we see the, the meninges, it's only in a textbook. The meninges look like these three beautiful thick layers over the skull, and you remove someone's skull and you dissect the brain. And you see the dura matters, but it's pretty thick. But the arachnoid and the pia, you can't, really, you can't truly distinguish from unless you really take your time and get a microscope, honestly. So seeing that and like really appreciating the structure, it makes more sense why when someone gets a brain bleed in combat, my time is limited of them about to herniate because there's not a lot of space. And when you hear there's not a lot of space, you're like, oh, there's not a lot of space. When you see that there's not a lot of space, it's much easier to envision the blood pushing against the skull and like pushing back down on that brain. And when you have time to appreciate that anatomy, you really understand the directions the brain can go. I think that is really lacking from helping the medics be more successful because yes, you can recognize a blown pupil. You better hope they have a blown pupil. You better hope the herniation is hitting the ocular motor nerve so that the pupil is changing, right? If it's not, but they're posturing a little bit or they're unresponsive because they just got their bell rung. I just felt like we, we weren't full as well prepared because we didn't have as good as appreciation of anatomy because very only textbook, even when Sockham still had cadavers, we didn't do the head anatomy really. The brain was in a bucket. We looked at the lobes and that was kind of it. So then doing neuropathology research and 
dissecting many, many brains and removing brains from during autopsies, you get a real appreciation. I would also say that I think pre-hospitalized medics do pretty great though when it comes to what we can do. We're pretty limited, right? If someone's herniating, we can give them hot salts and try and pull fluid out of the brain the best we can. We can give them seizure profile. Uh, we can intervene on a seizure. We can elevate their litter. We can resuscitate them because hypotension and brain hemorrhage is also not that great, right? We can give them oxygen if you're on a platform like I was on. It's hard to do that on the ground, right? Oxygen's super heavy, even in small containers. And so I don't know if we're truly lacking in the sense of where we're confined now. I would say that because we're so prone to criking people, we have less considerations since we're not paralyzing people and having to deal with some of the intracranial pressure concerns with intubating. And we can't do surgery, right? We're not doing burr holes. No matter how many 18 deltas out there think that they're ready to do a burr hole, we're not doing burr holes. And the whole like that one dude stuck an intraosseous needle and got lucky because most middle meningeal artery bleeds are in this one spot of the skull and he hit it with an IO, it's not probable. I think truly managing brain injury is much more complex than that. And I think we're going to need technological support if we're going to want to start doing any type of burr hole management in the field. And it's risky. Yeah. And let's just be clear that I've trained in general surgery and vascular surgery. If you were to tell me to go do a burr hole, I'm going to be extraordinarily uncomfortable and I'm going to really wish I didn't have to. So it's not just reflection of their skills. It's a reflection of the complexity of neurosurgery and that there's a reason it takes neurosurgeons eight years to become a neurosurgeon to, to do those procedures is because it is highly complex. And so even other surgeons that combat medicine are going to be uncomfortable in that same situation. I think that as a recovering overconfident special operations medic, it's like, if you were to say like, hey man, you got to do a burr hole, I'd be like, okay, sure. And, and I think there's a mentality thing inside of the special operations community that one can be inherently dangerous, right? Where you have too much confidence. And, and on the other side, there's also like, I, I also kind of celebrate that about us because that's, that's why we jump out of planes. That's why we're happy to go get in a gunfight. It, it's that same kind of mentality where you just assume that things are going to go as well as they can. And it takes you years of getting punched in the face by life before you start to realize Oh, wow. Like I'm not invincible, man. I don't make a lot of really good choices. And, and that's where I think that like the experience that both you guys are talking about, like, good God, man. I like, I, I want every special operations medic that listens to this podcast to hear what you guys just said, that the anatomy and the finesse that is required to do truly good patient care on such a fragile organ, like it has to be respected or you just, you will not do good medicine. And that's why you have to really be up to date on your medical management of those problems because the surgical treatment is that complex. So you talk about being in medical school, and I see this thing on the background of your LinkedIn profile that's soft to SOM. So Special Operations School of Medicine, is, I'm guessing is what that means. Can you describe that to me? That first time I'd seen it. Yeah, so we're, we're new. So Special Operations Forces, the School of Medicine is a 501c3 nonprofit. And we were born out of what happened over the last two years with a group chat. The most soft dude thing ever. Hey, I'm studying for the MCAT. This dude on, in this unit on this act, is on active duty. He's studying for the MCAT. I was at Columbia. I had academic advisors. If you're a Green Beret, you're at USOC, you're at 1-6 active duty. You don't have an academic advisor. No one's telling you how to write a personal statement. No one's telling you how to do a work and activity section. How do you prep for the MCAT? How do you use study tools properly? 
So we put us all in a group chat and we would talk every day. Hey, this is how I'm studying for the MCAT. Hey, this is how I'm doing this. And so the five of us, we kind of grew organically to start to grow in size. And then we're like, huh, this was really helpful. And so a bunch of us got into medical school together, which was, is awesome. It's like me and some of my favorite people on the planet are all in med school at the same year. And we started bringing more people in and we started going, what's keeping soft medics out? Not even soft medics, soft personnel. We treat any soft personnel. What's keeping soft personnel out of the medical school? Well, it's a lack of understanding for the admissions committees, what these guys and gals bring to the table. And it's a lack of um, cockiness from the soft applicant to put their experiences on their application. That is one of the biggest issues because, and I'll break down soft personnel are told to be quite professional. Soft personnel are told that what they did doesn't matter because somebody else did something crazier, right? My Kazavaks don't matter because my senior medic deployed in this year. Well, my deployment was not crazy because my senior medic was in the invasion, right? Like what, what am I to say my four patient mask, five patient mask out 160 is, is anything compared to my senior medic who's in the invasion, taking 20, 30 dudes, right? So we have this horrible mentality. So we downplay our experiences and we don't find ourselves to be fit compared to the other people applying to medical school. So I would get on these Zoom calls with special operators and I would say, you ever deploy, man? Obviously deployed. Yeah, I was in Iraq in this year. All right, well, tell me about your deployment. I built a tuberculosis clinic. You built a tuberculosis clinic? Yeah, I built a tuberculosis clinic for the local populace in 2012. Whatever happened in that tuberculosis clinic, it's still running. Excuse me? How old were you? You're 26 years old? You're a medic? You built a TB clinic in another country that's still running, being operated by their own people. So you built a sustainability campaign. Where's that on your application? Oh, I didn't know that that mattered. That's, that's nothing. That's a deployment. That's what we always do. Hey, another one. I was in Lebanon in this year. You were? Isn't that when the nuclear power plant exploded? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on the ground. What do you mean? I was the one coordinating all of the assets and running a sidewalk hospital because the nuclear power plant exploded and we had 600 casualties. I didn't sleep for a week. Why isn't that on your application? Oh, well, it's just another deployment, right? So this reoccurring theme of, I understand these, these guys and girls. I understand their backgrounds. I, I know what they've gone through in a sense, right? I've never, I didn't go to BUDS or anything, so I don't know what hell week's like, right? And stuff like that. But I know at least what they've been through and I call it hacking the ribbon rack. And so... What we did was we created this nonprofit where we are really selective on who we bring in because we're putting a lot of assets behind them. And what we've developed is a proprietary cognitive assessment developed by a cognitive psych that is in charge of selections at places like NASA and, spe and other special operations units. And we take that assessment and we put the applicant through that. If they meet what the objective criteria is that would be a good fit for what medical school is looking for, we bring them in. We give them MCAT support. So we help them learn how to learn again. We help them create study plans. These guys are older. They have wives. They have husbands. They have kids. So what does it look like to study when you have a four-year-old poking at your leg versus... We had a guy studying for the MCAT who was uh, on an away rotation, on away range coverage. He was in his van. The radio's going off every second because it's range coverage, and he's studying for the MCAT. How many kids are doing that to prep for medical school, right? And so helping these guys navigate those environments helping them write their essays, helping them translate their experiences, helping them soften some of the language, help them take some of that military writing out of their system and put in really nice, good writing. And then when I have a soft guy come to me and he only has six experiences 
out of 15 options on his resume called a resume for medical school, I get really upset and I try and I spend two, three hours on a Zoom with them to pull that data out of them. And the other thing that we're doing there is I help them get published. Medical schools like publications. We have, we're working with the JSOM to get guys published. We have mentors out there. General Volpe is one of our advisors, physician advisors. We have a great board. And so that's what we're doing is we're getting, we're selecting already highly selected people. We're putting a bunch of effort behind them. We're helping them get into medical school and we're hoping that we can help change the landscape of healthcare in the United States because we believe there's a significant lack of leadership and there's a huge leadership deficit in American healthcare right now. And we hope that we can take some of the nation's finest and inject them into that problem set. I think that's invaluable advice that you're giving people. And I'll, I'll just give my own, my own medical school interview example. I had, was at West Point, and so there was very little exposure to military medicine at West Point because they're training combat arms officers. But nonetheless, I'm selected to medical school. I go to my interview, and I had done a program called The Early Decision. Where you tell a medical school that if, if you pick me, I pick you. So let's, let's cut to the chase, and we won't have to go through a bunch of interviews. So I go to my interview and I ended up doing an interview with the dean of the medical school just by happens chance. I don't know if it's random because I was in the military. I'd gone to West Point. I don't know. But somehow I came up airborne school. Something you'd say, okay, something as simple as airborne school. You do five jumps out of an airplane. He was fascinated by this, right? It was a unique experience that none of the other applicants coming through there had done airborne school. And, and he was an older 60s, 70-year-old dean of a medical school. And he was absolutely fascinated by the fact that I'd gone to airborne school. And so all those examples that you mentioned for people who think, hey, I'm not unique, by being in the military, you actually are unique no matter how early you are in your military career. And you're giving very sage advice to the listeners that are listening out there. I appreciate it. The one thing too for the special operations medics out there, I would love to put, I've put special operations medics into medical school for a number of years now as a part of another nonprofit. Just because we did soft medicine does not mean that we get a free pass in a medical school. Understand that all the hard work you did to get to your tab, whatever color hat you had, whatever insignia on your chest was part of that pipeline. Use your experiences, your lessons learned, the leadership skills you have and now apply that same energy to getting into medical school. One thing soft to SOM never will do is ask for special privilege because I have a soft person that they should just be in medical school. No, we want our personnel to earn their spot in that school because your patients deserve it and you're on a new career. And there's phenomenal physicians that are in these schools, in the workforce, who weren't in the military, but they're phenomenal physicians and you need to learn from them. So. That's one thing that I've noticed from our community that needs to be worked on a little bit is I have a lot of guys hit me up and they go, hey, what are the soft friendly schools? Hey, what place is going to waive this credit? Hey, can you help me out waiving this credential? No, I can't. I can tell you what schools take veterans at a higher rate. I can tell you what schools understand our background a little bit. I have no issue with that. And we work really hard to make connections with schools and help educate them on what these backgrounds are. But we focus on their core qualities, the teamwork, the leadership, the integrity, the values. That's what we're selling to schools. And then the fact that they're highly selected individuals already. So we help them understand that. But because you did tourniquets or gave blood in some really complex environments, you got you still got to earn your spot. And I think that if you come in this mindset that I'm just going to walk into medical school, you're not going to be successful in medical school 
you might end up hurting yourself on clinical rotations on medical school because of your ego. So that's a big part of what we're doing at Soft to Psalm too, is like we let our group chat, the guys get to complain, have a good time. It's like a team room and tell us what is, you know, bothersome about medical school because there's stuff, right? But we also try and cultivate an environment where we're focusing on, hey, this is your next 40 years, 30 years, 20. You have a lot of life ahead of you after your soft career. Own it, like crush it. So sorry, that's a little tangent, but I have a lot of messages on my phone right now. Of, hey, man, hey, which, if, which place is going to waive my credits? I have a bad MCAT score. I have a bad GPA. Retake the MCAT. Get a higher GPA is what I'm going to tell them because don't ruin the reputation of our community for special privilege. Ricky, one thing I think that is really interesting is our community is known for running its people under the ground. And, and I think that that's, that's mostly a byproduct of the kinds of people that we are, right? Like very high performing, very alpha in a lot of ways, very competitive. And so one of the things that we consistently do, or at least that I've seen throughout my, my career is that people will spend too much personal capital and then they're, they're kind of looking for an off ramp that they hope will kind of buoy them up. Like, hey, like my wife's tired of me deploying. What is something easier, but that I can sell, kind of sell my family? Like, oh, it's going to be good. Dude, I was one of those guys. Like, I thought about going to med school. I thought about trying to become a PA. I thought, I've thought about doing a million things. And, and really, I saw that in myself. It, it wasn't the willingness to throw yourself into a new passion. It was, it was really looking for an escape. And, and I got to say, I'm, I'm really thankful that I, I chose not to pursue that at that time in life. Maybe that is my future. I don't know. But I'm really glad that I stuck around the military long enough to kind of balance my life back out so that I feel like I'm actually thinking clearly instead of just trying to escape someplace. It's funny to me because whenever really high performers try to escape, they never try to escape to someplace that's actually easier. They try to find somewhere else where they're like, well, it's just, it's hard, but it's different than what I'm currently dealing with. So that's got to be better. And I'm like, man, I don't know if that's actually the best route for you. When I started medical school, I had an extraordinary shock. All the fire of medical knowledge. I went into it with almost no medical knowledge. You go into it with medical knowledge. Do you find that medical school is hard, easy, different? I mean, how would you describe it to someone who's already had a background in medicine? I would say having the, having the 160th training and then Columbia's post-bac, I don't find medical school to be hard. I do find it to be an a very large amount of volume. And it is it's really strict time management and there is sacrifice because you really do have to study a lot. The definition of hard to me was like when I was new to Sockham and I really couldn't even understand what the word erythema meant. So I'm spending three hours on one medical term and I have 40 of them. With my really nice layer of medical knowledge, really great foundation in basic sciences for my basic science research and the Columbia Postback. A lot of the stuff right now is somewhere in my brain. So my curve to that I have to overcome is much less. So I will say that I don't find it to be hard. I'm very calm about it every day, but it doesn't mean that I'm not showing up to medical. I show up to medical school at 6.30 a.m. every day, right? And I, I'm, I'm studying till 7, 8 p.m. every night because the volume is extensive and the amount of responsibilities you have is extensive, right? So in my curriculum, we have all the basic science stuff that we're doing right now, plus clinical stuff. I also have to be proficient on my note-taking and note-writing skills from a physician style, right? I have bad habits because I used to write soap notes as a medic. Some of them are great. Some of them weren't great. So now I have to learn how to write like a physician. So I have to learn that stuff. I have to keep my clinical skills sharp. 
I'm trying to go into neurosurgeries. I'm trying to do neurosurgery research. So I have to fill that time slot in. I have to get into the OR to get early exposure. I got to fill that time slot in. So that's the difficulty. It's can I calmly ride this train and balance the stress of the clock more so than, than anything? And being an adult learner is hard. And a lot of our guys and gals have brain injuries. And that's another level of difficulty, especially because maybe they have ADD or ADHD. They've never been diagnosed in the military. You can't ha be on Adderall and have a dive physical or free fall physical, right? So maybe they need that now. They're out of the military. And so that, that's been hard for some of our guys too, is being an adult learner. But I'm really grateful. The Columbia Postback was absolutely miserable. I got my butt kicked there and I already got to have my like neurotic panic mode. So I think without that, medical school would be much harder. So I'm grateful for that. Oh, dude, that's awesome. So, hey, Ricky, we're, we're kind of running out on time here. And it, what I honestly, what I, I hate is the fact that we didn't even touch on, man, so many things that you do. I, I'm going to rattle these off. Okay, so you're a voting member on the Committee of En Route Combat, Combat Casualty Care and Surgical Combat Casualty Care. Uh, you're a board member for the Special Operations Medical Association. You have your own podcast, the R-Rated Science Podcast. Like These are all things that we didn't even get the chance to talk about because we were talking about everything else about you. That's awesome. So in closing, I've got one final question for you, and that is, what would you like your legacy in military medicine to be? Yeah, that, that one's tough because... When you think about legacy, I think about guys like Bob Mabry, John Dominguez, Steve Viola, Leroy Petrie. I think of Ian Anderson, guys that really gave a lot of life for a long time to the community and really innovated and developed the things that we have. Guys you've had on your podcast, Colonel Shackelford, Colonel Gross, those are the people I think about with legacy. I gave everything I had. I'm, I can confidently say that I'm very proud to say I gave every ounce that I had for the time that I was there. And I'm proud of what I did in that short time. Uh, especially with the clinical practice guidelines stuff and like hypocalcemia work and the TBI work kind of permeated throughout the community, which was great. But so for my, if, if I were to call it a legacy, I think what I'm most proud of is when I get guys hitting me up, they were like, you really took care of me. You really took care of me. And you always had our back. And so from, from the guys, from the, from the end users, whether it's crew chief, pilot operator, that, that's what I care about the most. As far as contributions to military medicine, I, I would hope that the legacy was that I brought people with me while I did it, right? Like when we did the Lethal Diamond Project, it was six special operations medics. I feel like I could have kept it to me. The TBI stuff, we have a whole soft brain working, health brain working group with like 160 people in it. I, I've, that's what I would want is that no matter what I did, I always brought people with me, soft to some. Like I got into medical school, but how can I get community into medical school? That's really what I care about is that I keep anything I do, I can bring people along with me while I do it. So, yeah. Man, and, and that's, that's why you have a leadership scholarship, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. We've been speaking with Ricky Ditzel on this episode of War Docs. Ricky, thank you for your time tonight and thank you for your service to our nation. Thanks. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word. <laughs>